Thanks for listening to the First Presbyterian Church of San Francisco Sermon Podcast. We pray it is a blessing to you and that it brings glory to our Heavenly Father. You can learn more about us by visiting us online. Just go to www.firstpresbyteriansf.org. Good morning. Our reading today, our, our text today for the sermon is from Psalm 90, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place from generation to generation. Before the mountains were created or you formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are like a yesterday when it is past, or a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your rage we are dismayed. You have set our corruption before you, our secret sins in the light of your face. For all our days pass away under your rage. We bring our years to end to an end like a sigh. The, span, the years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your rage according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, I am. How long? Take pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love so we can rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants, and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be on us, and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this morning we are plumbing. We are taking a look at a 4,000-year-old poem as a way of trying to discover what it is, how to know God, the attributes of God. This is a, we're going to be spending time in the scripture in different places, in different points in the Bible, different times, periods of time, different authors, taking a look at the attributes, the nature of God as it's revealed in the Bible. And this is one of the most ancient. This is a, this is actually a poem by Moses, the man of God. Now, you may know the name Moses. Moses towers in the Old Testament. He's one of the greatest figures in the Bible. Moses, who takes the people of God out of Egypt. Moses, the great prophet. Moses, the great leader of the people of God. You may not have been aware of Moses as a poet. Moses is also a capable poet, and we'll see here that this we'll see here in this poem. And and one of the things I, I I'm hoping to do 
is uh, is actually is, is un, we're going we're going to go through this text bit by bit. We're just going to unpack it and unpack what it says about God together. And what I want to do is, first, I want to just pull out a little bit and look at the structure of this and and point out some things and and talk about where we're going to go. Okay. Now, what I did here is I I, I don't know if you can really see this over Zoom very well. This top section, verses one through six here, that's in green right here. Then there's a second section, verses 7 through 11, and that's in red on your screen. And then finally, the last section is on, is in blue. Now, these three sections actually have three different topics. And what we're going to see is this poem, I don't know if I was reading it, what your kind of your impressions were or your feelings may have been as I was reading it. It's a very emotional piece of writing because it, 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 it just deals with such powerful ideas like the majesty and eternity of God, the anger of God, and then this pleading here at the bottom in blue. You see, it, I, I, I put it in bold. I put in bold all the commands, all the things that, 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 that Moses cries out. There's 10 of them. There's 10 different ways. God he, he cries out at, at, at the end to God uh, for mercy, for all these actions for God to take. And what we're going to do is we're going to unpack this bit by bit, looking first at the glory of the attribute of God in his eternity and, and his and, and then what that means in terms of his anger that actually means something personally for you and me. And then what do we do with God's eternity and his anger? And how does Moses at this end here, how does Moses get to this good news? How does he get so positive at the end? Because it doesn't really make a lot of sense. Uh, in an ordinary logic kind of idea. It doesn't really, it doesn't follow from the greatness of God and his anger that we should then cry out for his mercy. It doesn't, I, I don't think it does. And so I'm hoping we'll, we'll kind of open this up. Now, I want you to notice something. I want you to notice something. This is actually the outline. If you, if you looked at this, dealing with God's attributes, let's call this theology up here, theology in the first part. This is theology. This is the theology section. And then, uh, then you get some uh, a little more personal application section, and then finally you get a uh, a bullet point like all the different all the different things you need to do in response to these truths. And so you get the theology of God, the theology uh, how that applies to us in the middle bit, and the final bit how we apply it into how we use it in our lives. Now that outline it happens is the outline that Paul uses in the book of Ephesians and the book of Colossians. And in the book of Romans, and and it's interesting that there's a there's an unfolding here that kind of makes some sense, and I'm hoping we'll make some sense of it together. So let's jump in and see what God has to teach us. I'm kind of I'm I'm really kind of thrilled about God's word today. I I have a certain thrill in me about it, and I want, I'm hoping that you'll participate in in it with me. So that's first. Let's just jump in to the greatness of God, Lord. You have been our dwelling place. Now, Moses writes the first five books of the Bible. You're probably familiar with Genesis, for example. And Genesis, is, is, is it, it describes the creation of the universe. And one of the ideas that happens here, one of the things that, 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 that right out the gate, as Moses is talking about God, as he addresses him as Lord, Adonai, you have been our dwelling place from generation. We live and move in you and have our being. That's how it's said in the New Testament. That's actually how Paul preaches it in Mars Hill. In you, we live and move and have our being. What is this? This is the sustaining, omnipresent, all-eternal God. In other words, we, we live in him. We can't help it. 
Uh, God is everywhere, omnipresent. He is all present in all and in, in all times and all places. He is eternal. It's a way of talking about his presence and his eternity. And it's the first place that Moses starts. And it's a way of talking about the greatness of God. As he goes to the greatness of God, he unpacks it. It's not merely spatial, is it? It's not merely that God is, has an extension that is greater than space and time. No, it's greater than all of time itself before the mountains were created or you formed the world. This created right here is the word for begotten. Uh, it means to bear forth like to, to, to have a baby. Uh, before you did all this, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. This is this expression I want you to look at. Olam to olam, everlasting to everlasting, you are God. I think that text is dynamite. I'll tell you why. How does an ancient man some 4,000 years ago have an idea that the universe is so big you could take eternity and eternity and talk about talking from everlasting to everlasting. Now, this ancient Hebrew word means age or some indeterminate, un un unimaginable length of time. And here you see Moses is comparing this to uh, the formation of mountains, which we know now as moderns took many millions, hundreds of millions of years. Now, so, and, and so he, he used using these and, and, and he doesn't even fathom this. And he, he doesn't know what we know about the breadth and age of the universe, does he? He doesn't have any of that idea yet. But he, said he talks about olam to olam. And one, what I want to point out here is the wisdom of the Holy Spirit in the Bible. In other words, moderns, modern scientific analysis of the universe knows that saying from eternity to eternity is a good way to describe just how massive and ancient the universe really is. It is mind-bogglingly, staggeringly ancient. And here it is, in the words of the Bible, is captured the, this expression that, that really kind of gives room, doesn't it? It kind of gives room to the scientific discoveries of the modern world. And I think that is awesome. We should be thankful for that because God is so wise in writing the Bible. The Bible is not trapped in its worldview and its ancient worldview. It's not merely the utterance of primitives uh, in caves. It's not like that at all. What we have here is a rather sophisticated idea, so idea that eternity can call to eternity, as it were, everlasting to everlasting, that places God as a person beyond everything. And look, even in, re, in, in a thousand years in your, in your sight are like yesterday when it's past or watch in the night. In other words, even the proportions, even how we understand time, us and God together, is so different. They almost have no meeting place. They, they just don't meet up. And of course, this is a great in, introduction to read the, the, the opening chapters of Genesis when it says, you know, he created the earth in six days as meaning much more than that, as, 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 the, as, as we have discovered in the archaeological record. And so this is joyful for us. The scriptures are beautiful, but then I want you to see something deeper. I want to invite you in, because unless you get God big enough, this sermon doesn't make any sense. Unless you get him to the size that Moses is getting him here, it doesn't make him big enough. Now, uh, here, let me, let me, let me, let me, as in a sense, let's put it out there. God is so very, very big. Is that what I'm saying? Is that what the Bible is saying? Or am I saying God is so very, 
very old? Is that what the Bible is saying? Is that what I'm saying? No. And, and, and in fact, that's not what we're saying. We're taking the idea of bigness and oldness and saying God breaks all the scales. In other words, there's no scale on which I can put God. I remember uh, climbing El Capitan. And being on El Cap is it, such a massive piece of granite. You can never get perspective on where you are. You're on it. You're on this rope. You're looking around. You can't see where you are. So you look at this little map. You can't see where you are. In fact, it's hard to find a place in Yosemite Valley, this majestic uh, place uh, here in California. There's a hard to get a place where you can see how big El Cap is. You have to get up on another big mountain just to see how big that mountain is. Uh, often when I'm flying, uh, flying back uh, uh, east, I'll try to get a seat on a plane that uh, will be next to a window, and I'll try to figure out, because, because um, uh, I, I found this out later, but uh, pilots use Yosemite Value and, and, and El Capitan because they're such obvious landmarks. They use them as guides, so they tend to fly right over them. So I remember a couple times when I've been flying, I've been able to look out the window and try to get a perspective on how massive 3,000 feet of stone really is. That's El Capitan. But I can barely do it. God is greater than that. There's no place I can go. There's no plane I can fly in. There's no mountain big enough where I can sit there and go, aha, I see you, God. I got you now. I got a sense of your size. I got a sense of your age. I got a sense of your eternity. We can't do that. There's no place as finite beings where we can stand for that. Why? His greatness is unsearchable, just like Psalm 145 tells us. Now, I'm going to put it out there. God is so amazing, you don't even know how amazing he is yet. We don't even know how to talk about amazing in the terms that amazing would fit him. <laughs> That's how amazing he is. Now, the reason I bring all this out here, this idea of this this God, you know, all generations, all he's been our dwelling place of generation to generation and all this, is this just breaks all our categories about God. But you know what? I would think, wouldn't you, if God is this big, this is, walk with me here. If God is this big, this great, this amazing, what does he need us for? In other words, I was thinking about this. This almost sounds like a setup for some, an old, an old uh, theological heresy called deism. And the idea that God is so big, so massive, so amazing, he doesn't care about us. In other words, uh, my first thought when I, when I when I hear this, let's say we stop this poem by Moses right here, would be like, well, there you go. I guess too bad for you and me. Because God is this God is so unreachable, right? He he's so beyond our even our mind. How can we even conceive of him? In other words, how can we know him? But something interesting happens here. So God is exalted by Moses here in his amazing way as beyond space and beyond time, beyond bigness and beyond oldness. But then he goes in a surprising place. He goes to a surprising place that he mentions when God says to man, return, O children of man, return to dust, which is from Genesis 3, the fall of man. Because the size of God does not make him make, make him somehow impersonal. Take a look here. <laughs> Take a look. Look, look, at the, look at the five times it's mentioned. Anger, then rage, and rage, and then anger, then anger, then rage. We're talking about fury. Wow. So, we get, so, so taking that first concept, the first section, those first six verses, God's eternity is presented to us on this massive scale, right? 
But, but then the next point that Moses brings out of this is not only is God beyond our comprehension, he is extremely upset. He is upset. We are under the judgment of such a God. And, and, and there's, nothing, there's nothing impersonal. I, I, it's fun and funny. I think sometimes we think of God's judgment as perhaps being like gravity. It doesn't have any, any in other words, it's just something that happens. It's like a force of nature. Surely God's uh, justice is like that. But, but don't miss the point here. God's justice is not merely on this eternal scale. It's very, very personal. Take a look here in verse 8. You have set our corruption before you, our secret sins, where? In the light of your face. This is such a remarkable transition from the previous section, isn't it? Where God is above and beyond time, and all of a sudden, all that God in his greatness, our creepy, nasty, petty little words or ideas or thoughts and things we thought nobody knew about are right in front of him all the time, like a, pers a personal offense. This God in his greatness is personally offended by the fact that you don't listen to the sermon or that you don't care about, about, about love or that you don't care about listening to your boss at work or, or the secret sins, you know, the things you do like, well, nobody saw me do that. God is saying those are the things that I get most upset about. It's amazing to me. And, and so it's paired and this, the, 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 the poem goes to a strange place. That kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Moses had taught that in Genesis 3, God condemned us to go to dust because we rebelled against him. That was the curse. We're under the curse of God. And this greatness and this curse, it, it, it means personal liability. Now, God, and God is not angry just for the sake of being angry, is he? That's what's being taught here. He's not angry for the sake of being angry. He's angry because he personally takes it personally, what you do. He takes personally what you say about him, what you think, and how you what you do on Thursday. And, and when we take that eternal God and we take it right into the guts of our daily lives, we realize, oh my goodness, we are this is really an amazing turn for this, for the sequence of these ideas. Now, I, I almost didn't preach on this text. And you know why? Because I was concerned about preaching about God's anger. Uh, I, it is not a popular thing to talk about God and his justice, God and his rage. God is the God of wrath. A lot of times people think of that as old-time religion. That's like some old-time religion that, that, you know, that, you know, Chris has not gotten with the times, maybe, or something like that. But I think in our generations, we need this, we need this old-time religion, right? But I noticed something that really charmed my heart here. Take a look at this. Look, look at how he finishes this section as he talks about life. It talks about uh, the span of life being toil and trouble. Whew! Who considers the power of your anger and your rage? Okay, who does this according to the fear of that is due to you. That's what it, that's what that really means. The fear to you, the fear that is due, or the all reverence that is due to him. He asked this question here in verse eleven. Now, he seems to be asking the question in a fashion that asks this. It seems to be saying this: Who who even cares about this stuff, right? I mean, who 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 sits around and thinks about it? 
Who, who considers it? Who, who draws it in his data? Who says, huh, I wonder if I should sin today or if I shouldn't care about things. Uh, and, oh, but you know what? That may upset the king of creation, the, the Lord of the universe. <laughs> and, and, and what's interesting is he's asking that question in verse 11. And what, it, what, what really hit me was not believing that God is a judge, not believing and, not, and, 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 and shying away from teaching about God's anger against sin you know, that's an ancient problem. In other words, it's never been popular. And I, 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 that's, what that tech, that's what that verse means. It's never been, and it never will be popular. <laughs> Nobody's ever going to win popularity contests by, by announcing to the, to the world or to this generation or to the church or to, to, to our church right now, consider the anger of God. Consider. If you consider his greatness beyond your understanding, then you should reckon with what it means for that God to be upset. What does it mean for that God to look at you with anger and decide that he will, oh my goodness, you see? And, 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 and this is by way of conversation here. Moses lived a long time, and he spent 40 years, in the de- 40 years uh, tending sheep after he'd been a prince in Egypt for 40 years. He had known toil and trouble. He had known judgments of God. He had seen. He had gotten perspective on all this. He had gotten perspective on age. Now, a number of you are young. You don't have this perspective on age yet, but you're getting it. You're getting it. Some of you are in your uh, late 20s, early 30s, and you can already see how quickly time has gone, how quickly time has elapsed. Trust me, it just gets quicker. You get to uh, your 50s, and then you talk to people who get to their 80s. It feels like time has just sped up. And they have more and more of a sense of the transitory nature of it and, and, all, and all these things. Now, so Moses has this familiarity. He's also seen how God deals with rebels, how deals with, he deals with people who reject him. And that's the story of Exodus. It's the story of Leviticus. It's the stories of Numbers and Deuteronomy. And those are the stories of Moses' leadership, and they're stories of judgment and how seriously God takes sin. And when he asked this question in verse 11, who considers the power of your anger? It's the same today. People still don't want to hear about it. We still shy away from it. We still do not reckon it in our thinking. Who does, even today? Now. Okay, so that's the first part of this message. And in a sense, it's done. Well, my, my first goal was to present to you a God beyond categories. Praise him. And then to present to you a God who in anger will punish sin. He takes personally our, our sin. Something happens here in the poem that I, look, this poem's some 4,000 years old, right? And, uh, and I'm advocating that there is truth in this poem that will set you free, that will set us free, that could set this world free and this generation free. I don't know whether you're listening to this this morning or sometime later, but this is a message today that, 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 that there's a message here in this psalm for all of us, all, for all of history. And it's partly the riddle, it's partly the, the problem that, that the poem creates. What is the problem this poem creates? Look! It doesn't make any sense. This last stanza, verses 12 through 17 here, look at them. I, I have in bold all the commands. This is the imperative voice where, where the person's talking to God, and they're not saying, please. They're saying, do this. Hurry. Come here. Help me. 
return. These are not these are not polite. These are not polite interrogatories. These are the these are demands being presented to God. Look at them all. Look at the abundance of them. Look at the reach of them. Look at the look at the extent. Look at look at the core one. Look at this one. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. This is essence. This is covenant faithfulness of God of His heart. How does Moses get to a satisfaction request in verse 14 there? How does he arrive that that is a possible thing to cry out to God after the first part? You see what I mean? There's a problem here. We can look at the problem another way. Your anger, your rage, your rage, your anger, your rage. Return, I am. And then look, the favor of the Lord our God be on us. How do you go from rage to favor? You see, there's a problem here. There's a problem in the text that it, it seems like something's maybe missing, <laughs> honestly. Like Moses has a mind that God is great and that God is angry and that God, beyond all that, is tenderly loving and accessible and forgiving. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> I, I want to know how you, get, how you go from verse 11, 11 to verse 12. How do you cross this, this barrier here? How do you cross over from this first part of this poem down to the second part? The third part, I'm sorry. The first two parts down to this third part. How do you get there? Well, you know the old Sunday school, the old Sunday school answer, don't you? Well, you get there through Jesus. Now, could Moses, 2,000 years before Christ, have anticipated Jesus? Oh, yes, he did. Because remember, the Holy Spirit is speaking through Moses. And Moses is saying things that he doesn't even understand yet. And there, it's right there in that word, uh, return. And we're going to take a look at that. But before we even go there, we go to, the G, to go to Jesus, let's begin to ask for the things that he has asked for. I mean, uh, we're right in the middle, I'm right in the middle of preaching, preaching and teaching you this. It's appropriate when I'm preaching or teaching that you pray while I'm preaching or teaching. This is something I should train you all to do anyway. Whenever we're on a Sunday morning, or maybe we're in worship physically, or we're on Zoom, you should be praying for the other people that they, and you should be praying for me livingly. We should be act. There should be a moment and activity of prayer right in this moment, and we're being invited into it. Look at so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. And look at this. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. So let's join join me right now, Father. Teach us to number our days so we may get a heart of wisdom right now. Father, let your work be shown to us. Reveal yourself to us. Isn't that wonderful that right inside this poem is a petition, a cry to show us these things and show them to our kids. You should be praying that too. Show this to my children. Let my kids understand this stuff. So that's the first thing we have to do. Teach us. Let your work be shown to us. Let what be shown to us? Let Jesus be shown to us. If Moses is talking about Jesus, show it to us. So let's pray these two things, verse 12 and verse 16, because it's indispensable. We can't move into a knowledge of God or a knowledge of his anger or a knowledge of his love without him revealing it to us by the Spirit and revealing it to the people we love and care about, like our kids. So let's ask for that right now. Be praying right now. Start praying in your heart right now. And maybe this sermon will get a whole lot better. But what's what we should be doing? It's an attitude that what? It will bring us Jesus. Now, let's take a look here. Uh, 
You notice in the in the first part, he talks about God saying, you return man to dust, saying, return, O children of man. This is a reference to Genesis chapter 3 and the, and the fall of man and the fall. Now, the word return, though, in the Old Testament, the word return in Hebrew, the word return means repent. It means pivot. It means change. It means do a U-turn. It means turn yourself around. It's the word for repentance. And he says, and right here, you, you, you return men to dust and say, return, O children of man. But notice that that's what God says to us. And then in, in verse 13, it's what Moses says to God. You return. What? You pivot. Huh? You change. Huh? God, you need to repent. What? You see, there's a riddle here in the text. There's something that doesn't make sense. And in fact, Moses' Moses's words are nothing less than sacrilegious. Unless, unless, unless he's talking about something else, something new, something different. You don't tell God to repent. Unless, unless what? Unless God intends that he should repent, that he should transform, that he should change, that he should even be our repentance. What's going on here? It's very hard to understand why Moses uses this language until 2,000 years later. And the same question would be happening on John the Baptist's mind. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me. Why is that? Why? And what's John's problem here? Baptism's about cleansing. Baptism's about turning from sin. Baptism's about, well, it's about needing to be washed in, by God. Why would Jesus need to be washed? He's perfect. You see, John knows the problem. John knows he doesn't tell Jesus, repent. But what does Jesus say? Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for so it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. When Moses told God to repent, to turn around, to pivot, to change, he was calling for the work of Jesus who would be our change. You see, we can't even repent well. <laughs> even when God tells us to repent and return to dust, even that doesn't satisfy his judgment. But Christ can repent for us. And when, God, when, when Moses in this ancient world, he couldn't have known with clarity all this, but, he, but he, he suggests it in the Holy Spirit. He alludes to it and predicts it in the Holy Spirit that Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, would repent and be baptized. Why? Because he needed to be a perfect repentance for us. He needed, we needed a repentance that wasn't flawed. We needed a repentance that was pure. We needed a repentance that would appease the almighty God beyond measure. And that's nobody but Jesus. And you see, in the language and logic and the strangeness of the poem, Moses is actually preaching Jesus. Oh, praise God. It's amazing. It's, it's downright startling. So what's the point? What's the point? What's the application for all this? Put your trust in Jesus. He is the repentance of God for us. 
He is God turning from rage to favor. God is turning from rage to favor. Oh, praise him. So what are we going to do? Now, I, I think we're, I want to teach us some things about prayer that we should, we should engage in that this text is teaching us. And this text wants to open up for us. And the first thing I want you to do is invite you to put your trust in Jesus. And if your trust already is in Jesus, to renew that trust and renew your hope. And, uh, and the first thing I want you to do is we're going to learn some things today about how to talk to God. Three different ways, three different things that this teaches us now about this God who's beyond category, beyond measure, who's beyond greatness itself, who settles his anger with us in Jesus. What happens then? What happens as a result of this? And, and I want to invite us into three things that I think we could be doing, three things we, we could be talking to God, and three ways we should be approaching God the way Moses does. Because, man, I am so, so jazzed that Moses, some 4,000 years ago, is talking with more fervor, with more ebullience, with more joy, with more clarity than many modern Christians <laughs> that I know. Isn't that amazing? As his heart pours out here. So the first thing I wanted to do is, is having un kind of unlocked some of the, the theology of the text, I want to first teach us how to pray. And we need to pray with new boldness, like Moses is teaching us. What do I mean by this? We need to pray to, to change God's mind. What? That sounds so weird, doesn't it? Doesn't that sound kind of odd that you were gonna, that you should we should approach prayer and we should approach God and the things that are happening right now under COVID, or let's say, uh, or let's say, uh, emptiness in your marriage, or or futility in your life, or or frustration at work, or or just the futility of the daily living with COVID. All these different things we've been faced with, right? And what we're being invited to, what intimacy with God looks like, this is what it looks like in Elijah, it's what it looks like in David, and it's what it looks like in Jesus with his own father. And that is praying as if I change God's mind. That, that, in, in one sense, that's, that's what's happening here. Because the move, the move from rage to favor or that happens in the poem is based upon a return, a turnaround that Moses is asking God to do. And, I, and I'm, I, I'm here to say today that if you know God, that's how you pray. That's how you really pray. You know, like, I thought that God never changed his mind. I, I don't understand. We confuse God's immutability, the fact that he doesn't change, and we tend to think of immu immutability as immobility. We treat God like he's frozen in some sort of, in his majesty, that he can't act. Look, you are a creature. He is the creator. His ways are so much greater, as we saw last week, so much greater than our ways. We just need to do what we've been shown and do what we've been taught and stop trying to think we're clever about how God's will and how his will doesn't change and does change or whatever. Even the son asked the father to change his mind, and so should you. In other words, we should pray as if our prayers change the heart of God. I don't know any other way to pray. I don't know any other way to pray that has any meaning. Because if I, and, and, and some of you will say, well, Chris, what can we, uh, how can we do this when God ordains all things? I, I ask you this then, maybe God ordained he would change his mind when you asked. You see, there's no way, there's no way around, there's no way to get around all these little questions and start to be clever. I want you and I want us to have a living knowledge of the living God. 
And a living knowledge of the living God means we say things that say, when are you going to change your attitude about America, your attitude about our country and the church? When, when? Return. Wow. Turn around, Father. I don't like what you're doing right now in my marriage, or I don't like what you're doing now in my work, or I don't like what you're doing in our church, or I don't like what's happening in America, or I don't like... Then you, as a son and a daughter, need to lay hold of the new boldness you have for this God. His ways are beyond searching, and it makes no sense that one of you as a little child or daughter of God who barely knows him could darken the doors of eternity and ask God to change his will for America, and it would happen, but it happens. It happens. It happens. Oh, it happens. I, I just get so excited about this. That happens. God changes. As far as we could tell, as far as we could reckon, as far as it means anything to us. And so we are, what Moses is kind of showing us and Moses is patterning for us is something so alive with life and joy and power and potential. I, I don't know that we live in faith like this, and we need to. We're called to. And this is what living faith looks like. We pray as if we change God's mind. That's the only way to pray. It's the only way I pray. I want to change his mind about this. Because his mind is not the way I want, to, I want him to return. I want him to pivot. I want him to change. We're allowed to pray that way. So let's start praying that way with that kind of boldness. What's the second thing we get to do? The second boldness. The first boldness really is a boldness to ask the almighty God to change his mind. <laughs> the second boldness is to is to deal with God's idea of time. Now, 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 Moses is really candid. Like, God has a view of time that's nothing like yours. A day is like a thousand years, a thousand years is like a day. Wow, you know, we're on different, we're on different, we're on different time tracks, as it were, different timekeeping. Now, but but what's interesting about this is this, how long? All right, the first boldness that Moses had in prayer was to pray as if he's changing God's mind. We're invited into that. Don't try to figure out, don't try to be clever. Just ask to change his mind. Ask him to change his mind. What's the second part of it? We get to, we get, there's a picture here. Uh, I don't have a good calendar in front of me, but it's a picture like God has a calendar. Has a calendar and everything's everything's all scheduled out. And we already said you could change his mind. And then God, and then, and then you're like, we're allowed to go, like, we're allowed to talk to God like this. Okay, God, you, I don't know when you have, uh, uh, it's scheduled for me to be more joyful, but could you move that up in your schedule? <laughs> I, 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 you know, the Bible talks about uh, love and satisfaction and joy. I, you know, by, I, I, I haven't seen that stuff yet. How long before that comes in? How can you? Can you? How long? How long before I should expect that? Who talks to an Almighty God that way? Moses does. Because Moses gets something that we don't get. He gets this. God has put Himself on the line. That's why he can say things like return, and we can actually talk about God's schedule and remind God that his schedule is not a schedule that we particularly like. And I think it's just absolutely fantastic that we get to whine about the schedule of God. I, I, I know I'm whining. How long? I, I, it gets better than that. Look, look at in verse 15. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen evil. All our days in verse 14. Um, <laughs> It's kind of funny. God's saying, like, look, I'll even do a matching grant with you. This is so cool we get to talk to God like this. This is such a, a unique boldness based upon where this, where this 
poem began. This poem put God in unreachable greatness, right? And then portrayed him in all of his anger on sin. And then what does it do? Well, now it gives us a redemption and a boldness where we're like, uh, Father, I, I, need, I need you to get on time here. I need you to show up. I, I need to know where you are. And I was wondering, could you match um, all the suffering? Could you have a matching grant in time for all the time I've suffered? Could I have as much time as that? We get to say things like that to God. All right, let's take a, COVID, a year of COVID. Okay, Father, we've had a year of COVID. Could you give us a year of just downright blessing that's as much blessed as it was cursed? Why not? And and there's a wonderful engagement here, isn't there, with the very practical things of this almighty God who's greater than oldness and greater than bigness. Isn't that incredible? The boldness has one more feature. So the boldness, we have this boldness to ask God to change. We have this boldness to, uh, to, to, to actually bring God onto our schedule and ask him to meet our schedules. We can do this. Let us do it together. What's the last boldness? Establish the work of our hands. Let the things that I do last. This last thing is we get to ask for significance. You know, in the end, the size of God and the size of the universe, as man has begun to see it, can just in the end make you feel pretty, pretty uh, much like a piece of dust, right? Like, what is the point? What is the relevance of our holiness? What is the point of us working so hard to plant a church in San Francisco? Why work so hard on our marriages and our families? Why labor and for years? And Because what difference does it all make, right? I mean, God is so big and everything is so, what different? And there's a certain kind of futility in human thinking, but it is not in Moses' thinking. Moses isn't like that. Moses doesn't take the greatness of God or his anger, and it doesn't leave him in an isolated place without hope, does it? No, in fact, he does this double thing. He says, establish, establish, just like generation, generation, and everlasting, and everlasting. And these echoes, these are poetic echoes, you see, two by two. And there's a wonderful pairing in the beginning and end of this, of, of this poem. And, uh, and, and so what, what we're being invited into is that God is going to make the stuff we work on, the other people we work in on in church, the fact that you show up for Bible study and are part of caring for people getting off the street or helping people figure out their lives or helping people know God and all the different things we're doing here, they all matter. And we're allowed to want them to matter. And God will make them matter from everlasting to everlasting. He will establish and establish. Wow. You're allowed to ask God for the things you do to make a difference. We're allowed to ask those kinds of things from him and even expect them. Mm. Establish and establish. I hope at the end here, now, you know, it's funny, we reach across space and time in ourselves some 4,000 years. And we reached out to this, 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 this ancient man who, who we don't know, and we didn't know his language, and we didn't know his time period, and we don't know his culture. And yet, as he begins to pray, as he begins to write this poem, we're brought into all the thinking of the Bible. We're introduced to the hope of Jesus. We are introduced to the greatness of God and his majesty. And we're introduced to the hope that is in God's turning to us, turning to us in his son Jesus, turning to us with good things. 
And all of this is now building. It's supposed to build a new fervent hope. I mean, a new activity, a new prayer life that seeks to change God as if it, why not? Why not? This God has invited us in. That seeks, that, that seeks, that, that calls God into our schedule, even in his own. And then, and then asks him to establish what we're doing here, how we're working, how we're working in each other's lives for eternal things. <laughs> we can hope for all that in him. Such a God, such a Savior. Let's pray. Dearest Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the poem of Moses, <laughs> the man of God. Now, as we uh, we pray that you would reveal and you would show your favor to us, you would reveal this to us and to our children, and we ask you to do that, Father. Uh, would you uh, reveal the truth of these things to us in new ways? And we're, we're here, Father. We 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 want to change your mind about things. We want to change your mind. Your mind. Uh, it seems like you've made up your mind to, in some ways, abandon the church in this age. Father, will you change your mind? Will you return? to us? Will you turn back to us? And uh, will you teach us how to number our days and get a heart of wisdom? Father, everyone, everybody on this Zoom call has a schedule of things that we, that we, uh, we want you to get on, things that we, we just cried out, how long? How long before you answer us for this and that and the other thing? Father, that's a, thank you for inviting us to do that. Will you, will you, will you trade with us? Will you do a trade and trade off all the the hard times we've seen for as many as good times and satisfy us? Father, we thank you that we can bring you uh, our requests for significance. That that uh, our lives are not futile and empty. We can ask for you to establish even the works of our hands. <laughs> it's funny we're reading this poem that this man wrote uh, 4,000 years later. I guess you did establish the work of his hands, didn't you? <laughs> but, but I, I, Father, will you show us and reveal to us how you're, you're doing th- eternal things in and through us all the time and establish the work of our hands at first press, all of us, as we labor to de- together for the glory of Jesus. Father, I pray that the word today would have could bring us hope and joy in you. For we come in Jesus' name. Amen.